1887, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is probably one of my favorite dead people to ever die, uh, published in his monthly magazine something he called the downgrade. It was a title he gave to some articles that were published in his magazine called The Sword and Trial. Uh, Spurgeon was in uh, London. He's a London Baptist preacher. If you don't know who he is, please read Spurgeon. Uh, the current state of evangelicalism in Spurgeon's day was beginning to drift downward, hence the name, the downgrade. And he said it was going at a breakneck speed. Uh, prior to these events, Spurgeon was probably the world's most popular preacher. So the name, you just knew Spurgeon. He was bigger than Billy Graham. He just, you, everyone knew who he was. Spurgeon was Spurgeon. Uh, his newspapers were, went throughout the country. They went to America while he was in London. They went everywhere. Everyone knew Spurgeon and his books. For about three decades, he was the prince of preachers, they called him. He was a theological giant, a powerful preacher, a prolific writer, and a man full of wit, mercy, and compassion. If you read his writings, he's, 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 something about him is just, it just draws you in about his writings. Spurgeon was one of a kind. His pastor was at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, one of the largest churches in the Baptist Union at the time. Huge church, still stands. And yet, in the Baptist Union in London, the vast majority of those brothers who were part of that union, part of their church were in this union, were beginning to shift theologically downward. At the peak of the controversy, Spurgeon wrote about some particular issues that the church was facing. So there were a lot of problems going on that were dividing the churches in England. And sadly, those who were leading these theological charges were pastors. Spurgeon writes this concerning some of the issues that were happening. Quote, Our warfare is with men who are giving up the atoning sacrifice, denying the inspiration of Holy Scripture, and casting slurs upon justification by faith. So in other words, they are saying, really, anyone can get to heaven. The Bible is kind of give and take. Jesus' death wasn't really for sinners. It was kind of just like a, a model of how to live. That was, that's the direction they're going. In other words, the main parts of what make Christianity Christianity are just being just, ah, forget it. And Spurgeon was one of the few men in that day to say, we can't do that. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. Spurgeon again writes this kind of a somewhat lengthy quote, but I want you to hear it. This is his famous words that he wrote in this newspaper. No lover of the gospel can conceal for himself the fact that these days are evil. We are willing to make a large discount from our apprehensions of the score of natural timidity, the caution of age, and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that these things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly tending downward. A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and this plea usurps pulpits which erected for gospel preaching. Keep listening. This is, this is where Spurgeon gets heated. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of Scripture derided, the Holy Spirit degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into friction. The resurrection is a myth. And yet, these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. So Spurgeon's angry. They're changing the gospel. They're stripping the gospel from the gospel and saying, we just get along, friends, we're Baptists, let's get along. And Spurgeon will not have a stand. He was ripped in the public newspapers. They mocked him. His voice was loud as a popular preacher, but he looked like a fool. Even students from his own college turned on him. 
It's a hard time for Spurgeon. In 1888, the Baptist Union Council voted to accept Spurgeon's uh, basically resignation to leave the union with his church. Nearly 100 men voted against Spurgeon. Only five supported him. So the vast majority said, you know what? You want to go? Just get out. We don't want you in here anyway. Spurgeon, you're causing too many problems. Later, the union would adopt a compromise doctrinal statement, which was pathetic, um, very low, very poor theology, very bad. It passed the overwhelming majority by a vote of 2,000 to 7. Bad. This can, a lot of people interpret this as just another attack. You know what? We don't like Spurgeon so much. We're going we're gonna to adopt a bad statement and rub it in his face. That's kind of the, the thinking behind it. So much so that Charles Spurgeon's own brother, James, would actually vote in favor of the new statement. So just what will happen with, with his brothers, I don't know, but they fell. Spurgeon actually would die about five years later. So what's noble about Spurgeon is the last part of his life, he was preaching, he was solid for 30 years, he died solid. The last five years of his life, he said, I have to stand. I can't let bad theology go. I can't let bad preaching go. We can't let the gospel be compromised. We can't change things to attract people. That's what, that was the problem. His reputation was splintered. His pastoral poise was shot down. All the work he had done just forgotten because they think Spurgeon's just this uptight fundamentalist. We can't deal with this guy. Sad. At that time, there were big views going on that influenced this, like Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. Sounds familiar? Universalism, which is code for everyone goes to heaven. You don't matter how you get there, you just all go. And low views of scripture were these roots that caused this big divide in the Baptist history. The folly of the Bible was being removed in order to impress and appease the world. That's, that's what's happening. The things that are embarrassing, quote unquote, are being stripped. So, well, people will like it more. We'll get a bigger union. We'll get a bigger building. More money will grow. Spurs will have none of that. Today in Paul's text, it's similar, a similar discourse. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth unpacks those very things which to the world make the gospel foolishness. But to believers demonstrate the wisdom and the power of God. God and the gospel are folly to those who are perishing. That's what Paul's point is here. So I want to show you two ways that Paul speaks about God's foolishness. Again, to the world. That's how the world sees it. In two ways. The folly of the gospel and the folly of preaching. First, I want to get to the folly of the gospel. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the, the core ingredient, so to speak, of the cross. Well, what is that? When we speak about the cross of Christ, we're presenting a message. It's if, you, if you wear a cross on your neck, I often ask people what that means. A lot of times they say, I have no idea. I think it's just a cool design. It's bad. But when believers talk about the cross, we understand that there's a, a message. There's a main push. Well, what is the message? Christ crucified. That's what it stands for, right? The cross stands for Jesus dying for sinners. That's what, that's what we understand to be. The focus of the cross is Jesus Christ dying in the stead of ruined sinners. That's the point of the cross. Have you ever pondered just simply, if you believe that, that assumes a couple things. Number one, it assumes that people are sinners, right? If you assume that Jesus died for sinners, that assumes that there are sinners. Well, if, you read, if you're listening to the sermon, you're in this church, like me, you would qualify for that. You would be a sinner. And all of mankind. So the cross is an indictment against mankind. It stands as a glaring fact that we actually are not good people. Mankind is ruined. We are totally depraved. Romans 3 and Ephesians 2 say some very charming words. They say there's no one good. 
We are spiritually dead. We are unable to please God. We are corrupt, unrighteous, following our leader, the devil. Very comforting words. The cross points to us as if Nathan pointed David and said, you're the man. You're the one who sinned. It's me. It's Kale. I sinned. That's what the cross glaringly points at me. And number two, the cross highlights this, that God is just and wrathful, that he is a judge, that God is angry, not just at sin, but Psalm 5 says God's actually angry at sinners, actual people. He's angry at people, not just evil deeds, but people like me, who's a sinner. Every man deserves his just condemnation. The wage of sin is death. Every day we deserve death and dying. God is the righteous judge who will judge the world. The cross is a reminder that God will one day perfectly punish all sin and sinners. But to the Christian, the word of the cross is much more than that. The judge has actually become the substitute. That the high, holy, omnipotent creator said, I will suffer for those men. I will die in their sin. I will become a man to die. So God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a man in order to represent the unrighteous man as the one mediator between God and man. We see the cross and we think, oh, that's good. We love the cross. The word of the cross is that God can be perfectly and completely just by punishing guilty ones, pouring out his wrath, and yet at the same time be infinitely gracious, immensely merciful, and show an ocean of love towards people who he saved. It's the same cross. We can see the same thing at the same cross. But in verse 1, look at how it's perceived. So it's the gospel, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Before we get to the folly, who are the perishing ones? According to the Bible, the day you are born, again, I'm trying to be real charming here today. The day you're born, you start dying. Right? From day one. You're born, just born to die. Kind of a comforting Hallmark card. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 says that there's a time to be born and a time to die. We know this. There's evidence. This is actually evidence of God's judgment against sin. How do you know there's sin in the world? Well, because people die. We know that because it's, the, it's God's judgment upon sinful rebellion that Adam did. Everyone's born in Adam to die. Part of the curse is not only just physical death, as Genesis 3 does show, but also immediate spiritual death. So Adam and Eve lived for a long time, but then they did die. But immediately, they were spiritually, I think we use the word separated, but they're spiritually dead. They didn't have direct communion with God. It was removed. So consider the message of the cross. So those, that's, the, that's the perishing ones. Those who are born in Adam are spiritually dead. They're walking zombies, you could say, spiritually. And one day, we're physically going to die. Now consider the message of the cross. It's folly. This is a natural response to the gospel. You've probably heard things like this before. You love and believe in a crucified, naked, suffering Jewish person? You think Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead? You know that all science literally shows that's impossible? Do you understand how crazy that sounds? It's scientifically impossible. So you're telling me that God is angry at me? You actually think there's a hell? Are you being serious? What kind of God do you serve? Do you you ever hear those things? Or read them? Or see them in a... TV show or movie for crying out loud, I've seen on TV before. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, cannot accept the things of God. They just can't. We are unable. They're folly to him, it says. So our natural state is that we are unwilling and unable 
to believe the truths of the gospel, that we are dead. We can't accept it. We just reject it. It's folly. It's laughable even if you're an unbeliever. But yet, it's good news that despite man's reaction to the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is not tarnished. Isn't that good news? That the beauty of the gospel is not dependent upon responses. It's good news. It's objectively good. The whole world can reject the gospel, can deny it, to find to be folly. We can twist it. We can contort it. The gospel is glorious and rich and good because it is God's gospel. God's proclamation is the gospel about his son, the one whom the father said, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. So God's highest delight is in the gospel of his son. Therefore, it's not about who accepts it, what man thinks, how it's contorted. The gospel is beautiful because it's God's gospel. It doesn't matter how we think. It doesn't matter how it's twisted. Or, you think that baloney is real? That's not, doesn't affect the luster of the gospel. Beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. It's actually in Christ. That's the point. So may we never allow the responses of natural man to alter our views of the gospel because it's discouraging. My wife and I have friends and family who are unbelievers. I work with some and we have family who are. And they scoff or just, yeah, whatever. Or it's not taken seriously. And at times it makes you think, hey, am I putting too much focus on this? Try like, you know, maybe back off a little. So you think, right? You want to back off? I don't want, I don't want to be so gospely in their face. The gospel is beautiful regardless of their response. You need to treasure that. This is good news. It's good because God declares it. It's why the gospel is good. Verse 1, the apostle continues, but, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are being saved are a different group of people than those who are perishing. You probably can guess that, hence why the word but is there. So who are those who are being saved? Here's a, here's a question. Uh, to those who are being saved, hold the phone, Paul. Um, I thought I was saved. What do you mean I'm being saved? Does not make any sense? Is there like a grammatical error? Is Paul like having a long day in, in the prison cell? Just being saved, sounds fine. No, I'm glad you asked. I'm so, thought, so thankful you asked me that question. Let me give you an answer. Because Jesus did say it is finished, right? So if it's finished, then why are we being saved? I thought it was done. The Bible actually speaks of salvation in three tenses. Saved, past tense. Being saved, present. And will be saved future. Let me give you one text for each so you can get an understanding. Past tense. For by grace you have what? Been saved. Good. Through faith. Ephesians 2 8. You guys know that. It's not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Save present tense. 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. Future tense, since therefore, Romans 5.9 says, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in Christ, these are helpful words the Bible uses, we have been saved. Past tense means you're justified. God has declared you legally righteous. You have no sin in you in God's courtroom, which is, again, confounding. I know my sin in my heart, <laughs> but in God's courtroom, you're justified. You are declared righteous, so you've been saved. In Christ, you are also being saved or being sanctified, we would say. It's the, it's the progression of being saved. So you are saved positionally, but now your life is growing forward to holiness. You're being transformed. You are being saved. 
And finally, in Christ, sinners will be saved. They will be glorified, we would say, transformed from what they're declared to what they actually will be. Will one be the same? Faith will be sight. They shall be saved. Just as those who are perishing are actively perishing more and more, so those who are Christians should be inching more and more towards holiness, towards righteousness, towards Christ's likeness. So today, you claim to be a Christian, which I assume you would claim that because you're sitting here not letting you, you've not walked out yet. You need to examine your heart, ask the tough questions. Am I progressing in holiness? Are there growths in my walk? Here's some helpful questions. Are you more aware of your sinfulness? Once heard a pastor named John Piper, he's, he's, he's maybe, maybe 80 now, 78. Beecher probably think, wow, he's young. Uh, who said, man, I am in my 80s and I still sin like crazy. So as you're progressing as a Christian, do you still recognize sin in your heart? Are you more aware of it? Are there more sins you discovered? Oh my goodness, now I, I'm, no, I was that angry all the time. I'm angry a lot now. Are you discovering more sins as you become holier? Do you notice an increase in your love for Christ? It's a tough one. Do others notice those things? Do they see that in you? This is why the local church body and church membership is so important. You guys exist for God's glory, but also for one another, to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to warn one another of the dangers of sin, to encourage them to pursue holiness, to say, hey, can I confess some sin to you? I'm weak in this area. Can you please pray for me this week? That's what we're supposed to do as, as brothers and sisters. We don't hide our weaknesses. We have nothing to hide. You're just as sinful as I am. Someone confess and ask you to pray for me. That's what the local church is for. Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3 says this. It's a beautiful text. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from, from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So your job is to encourage one another, to exhort, which means, brother, I sinned today. Confess it to God. But no, you are in Christ. You are forgiven. Repent and believe the gospel. That's your job. Friend, don't give in to sin. Kill it. Confess your sin. You're weak like I am. Jesus is a strong Savior. He's good. We need brothers and sisters in the church to encourage us because we need the gospel daily so we continue being saved. Verse 1 continues, to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. So again, we recognize the beauty of the gospel. It is precious to us. If you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear, spiritual taste buds, maybe you could say, to see that the Lord is good, you understand that the same gospel that is mocked on TV, that is ripped in half, and I mean, every Easter and Christmas, there's a new History Channel special about, we found the tomb, his bones are in there. Like, he's not really risen. Questionable evidence. I, just, I promise that every year there's a, there's a Time magazine and CBS says the same thing every year. New evidence, whatever. It's, it's a joke, in case you're wondering. It's not actually new evidence. It's folly. If, if you read it, it's insane. But to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. God's mightiness is power to save sinners, to change their standing before him. We see that and we think, gosh, what a gospel. It's the power of God. It's not folly. It's not stupid. It's not laughable. It's the power of God to save sinners. He saved someone like me. We see the cross and we marvel, we worship, we fall down. Consider the power of God in these examples. The city of Nineveh that Jonah preached to. Nineveh was a wicked city. Do you guys know that? Like the city capital of 
think it's Syria. I, I don't write it down my notes, but I think it's Syria. They would skin people alive to like demonstrate, yeah, we're going to hang your skins on the wall. Should be able to get how strong and mighty we are. Hey, do you want to go preach there? Yeah, right. Go to Tarsus. Give me a ship, Lord. And his preaching, they're converted. The whole town's converted. Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, is the great commander of the Syrian army, a pagan king, a pagan army he was in charge of. Powerful man, victorious. He was converted by preaching. The murderous, threatening, Christ-hating Saul of Tarsus, you probably remember, was converted by Christ. So again, and you who were dead in your sins are now alive to God. Friends, if you're a believer, you are a walking miracle. Like, you see Jesus and you marvel at him. You don't mock him. That's miraculous. We are once a spiritual Lazarus, but now we're, once we're dead, now we're alive to God. I don't, I don't want to get too far in, uh, later in 1 Corinthians, this question is answered more thoroughly, but the difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved, I want to be very, very gracious and very, very helpful biblically here. The difference between me and I would say my older brother, who's not a believer, probably, probably, is not that I'm smarter than he is. It's not my wit, not my thinking, it's not my humility or my willingness to listen, it's not my knowledge, it's not because I'm more humble, because that would be a boast of my pride. <laughs> oh. It's not because I'm smarter. It's because the power of God saved my soul. It's not kale. It's not my wit. It's not me. It's the power of God. It's God's grace. But for the grace of God, there go I. So we need to remember that the difference between you who are being saved and the perishing is not us. It's not our bootstrap pulling up. If it was, we would just run right away. We'd see it, Lord. I'm off to do other things. It's the power of God. It's good news. It's good. So the word of the cross is followed to those who are perishing. Now, Paul is going to carry us to the means by which the word of the cross is actually heard. The folly of preaching. Look at verse 19. For is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul goes to his source of authority, which is the Bible. Paul of the Bible. That's why he says it is written, or you have heard it said. He quotes these things. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14. Um, you don't have to go there, but I want to, maybe you guys know this, maybe you don't. I don't know what you um, know, but have you ever read a New Testament quote of the Old Testament and been like, this does not read the same? You're done, you're done that before? I have. So, you look, so if you, look, if you look, look at this text and look at Isaiah 29, 14, it is not the, it is not the same. It's close. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, discerning of their discerning men shall be hidden. So like, it's real close, Paul. So what's Paul doing? Well, Paul used something, their Bible, the Bible that Jesus would quote from, the apostles would quote from. It's called the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So you've heard, just kind of a side, sidebar, it's helpful to know they're quoting from the Greek version. That's why this is that Old Testament, your Bible is translated from the Hebrew, okay, original. Well, they used a translation because they, they was just common language to speak Greek. That's just how it was done. So just side note to kind of make you go, oh, cool. So Septuagint's a good word for scribal probably, maybe, I don't know. Um, anyway, in Isaiah 29, there's some history going on that's very important. One commentator notes this. He summarizes Isaiah 29 very helpfully. The prophet Isaiah predicted that Jerusalem would be besieged but would escape harm. However, the so-called prophets, so the false prophets, 
and those deemed wise would fail to discern what God was doing. In verses 10 and 12 in Isaiah 29, God makes it very clear, you have no idea what I'm going to do. Actually, verse 13 is a verse that you guys well know that Jesus quotes all the time. But in this text, Paul's main point is that God is thwarting those who think, we know what we're doing, Lord, we're fine, we're smart, we're wise. Don't need Isaiah, you got wise people behind him, he's fine. That's what, that's what happened in Isaiah 29. So Paul quotes that text in judgment. Then look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So in Paul's own citation, he applies this text to the Corinthians. Think of the ancient world. Think of, if you think of Corinth. Think of Greek, Roman. What do you think of? Like people who are smart. What do you think of? Like Plato, right? That, that kind of thinking. Aristotle thinking. Greeks were smart. I mean, there's Roman roads that are still in use today. Roads that they made that still work. Like they had pl like sewage plumbing. They were brilliant, brilliant people. So Paul's blasting them. The wise, the Greeks love wisdom, right? The, word, the name Sophia is a Greek word for wisdom. We like the, way, we like the name Sophia. It means wisdom. So Paul blasts the wise, the, the Sophia, so you, you could say. He goes after the scribes who are the Jewish leaders who knew. Well, they knew Jesus wasn't God. They knew for a fact. They know the Bible so well. Jesus failed the test. So he goes after the Jews, too. And then he blasts the debaters, the ones who like to argue their case. The apostle holds up the riches of God's wisdom in the gospel and says that they think it's foolish. If you want to learn another fun fact today, the word foolish here is where we get the word moron from. It's like moronic is the word. So moron is where we get so foolish. So people see the cross and they think, moron? Madness. That's insane. That's crazy. Do you not see this today in the world? Do you not see the wisdom of the world, how they observe the gospel and the claims of Christ? And what do they do? They smirk. The wisdom of the world cannot understand or discern the truth. The discerning cannot discern. The wisdom of the wise cannot find. But their objections are not old. There's nothing new under the sun. And their judge is not asleep. I want to read for you a verse that's helpful. And I'll explain it, because I think this maybe seems odd. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, Do you know this text? There is no God. It's a fool. So a fool says in his heart, There's no God. That charge is not against people's intelligence. It's not because their IQ is low. It means it's foolish. It's insanity. It's moronic. It's because in Romans 1, Paul says that God has made plain the things of God. It's obvious that God exists. God does not believe in atheists. Okay? He just, they don't exist in his world. They don't. Because the evidence is so clear, the Bible says that we suppress it. We go. It's like holding a beach ball down in the pool, just struggling to hold it down, right? That's an unbelieving people. Before we were saved, we did with God's gospel. We just, we're going to suppress it. We're going to push it. And we're actively going to push down against it. That's insane. It's crazy. The wisdom of the world is, ab is absolutely mad. We have men of high IQ, renown, and power rise up in the world, and yet they see the gospel and they shove it away. Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So the academics of a world, the fact checkers, the scientists, the philosophers of our age, they stand as pillars of foolishness when it comes to the things of God. Don't be impressed. Don't be mocked. 
It's amazing. I want to read some. This is I spent a lot of time drooling over this stuff. I think science is really cool. I enjoy biology and those things. This is astronomy. Some most brilliant minds on the planet work for NASA. Did you know that? They send immensely complicated and intricate rovers to Mars. And we think, oh, yeah, just a big car, whatever. And that's what I think. Oh, cool, like an RC car? <clears throat> Let me explain it to you. The name of the rover on Mars, his name is Curiosity. That's curious, isn't it? Bad joke. It's nine feet long, seven feet high, weighs about 2,000 pounds. So it's like a size of like a van. Like pretty big. It enters Mars, the atmosphere, at about 200 miles per hour. If you enter an atmosphere, there's fire, right? Because it's going so hot, you hit the atmosphere, you catch on fire. So how do you get a 2,000-pound chunk of metal into Mars without catching fire? And then you've got to slow it down. Here's what they did. They assembled rockets and parachutes in certain order to slow the landing down, catch this, from 200 to 1.5 miles per hour. That's insane. I mean, God, that's, I can't make that car slow down from falling, like falling from space. Just slow the van down to 1.5, to land safely from space. How far is Mars? Glad you asked. If we could travel the speed of light, anybody know that top of their head? 186,000 miles per second, which is in one second, you could go seven and a half times around the world. So <laughs> this is fast. It would take you three minutes at that speed to get to Mars. But rovers don't travel that fast, you probably imagine. It takes about a year and a half. Earth is 238 million miles away, which means when that rover's there, if you want to say, hey, uh, roll, 10, roll 10 feet forward. I don't know how you send a text to Mars, but that's what you do. To do that, to send a message, it takes about five to 15 minutes for a message to get through for the rover. So it's really delayed. So you say, you know, roll forward, and you're kind of like, Everyone want to get lunch first or what? It's going to be a while. So you wait 10 minutes and it moves. Just think of just the immensity. These brilliant people. Brilliant people. I actually knew a girl in California who's part of that team. Pretty cool. Anyway, brilliant men. I mean, learning is just stupendous. Like, it just, I can barely nail a hammer, a nail into a wall, let alone land a rover. Creativity, amazing. They're brilliant. But when it comes to the revelation of God, they just think, that's dumb. They're moronic. They're foolish. It's absolute folly. It's not their IQ. It's their heart. Their heart is dark and sinful. And it hates God. It, it, it suppresses. It's not their IQ. It's their heart. It's a heart problem. And this is true if you look at verse 20 again. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world by the word of the cross. So this is God's doing. This is a God's judgment upon a world that he shatters the wisdom of the wise overthrows their thinking, destroys their understanding of the gospel, even though we attempt to do that. In this, then, if you are a believer, let me remind you one more time, this, re- this leaves no room for boasting. If it was up to really smart people, I can tell you right now, I would never get within 10 feet. Just, if it was all about IQ, I'd be, the tomb's dead over there. I wouldn't figure, I would never figure it out. It's not about IQ, it's not about brilliance, it's not about how quick you are. It's faith. It's a heart that's been alive by God. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Faith is the key that unlocks the mystery of the gospel. John Piper once said that you don't need to know a lot of things to make a difference in the world. 
You need to know very few things and be gripped by them. It's not the brilliant, it's not the attractive, the pretty, the athletic, the strong who change the world, but those who are gripped by the gospel. So brothers and sisters, may we preach a high gospel. May we preach it to the high and low, to the highways and the hedges, knowing that God has the power to overcome the most stubborn heart, the most wicked man, the most God-hating person, because it's the gospel of his power. This is why Jesus came into the world. We cannot reason our way up to God. We can never figure it out. God must condescend to us. That's why the incarnation is so beautiful, like God stoops down. John Calvin once said that this is God's baby talk, so I have a little baby. I've never so, come here, maybe put this helpfully. If you're a strong, manly man, you see a little baby, what do you do? A goo 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 goo. Every single, it doesn't matter who you are. You can drive a Harley and have 12 shotguns. I don't care. Hey, little baby. You do. Do you want to know why? Because you got stupid love so they understand. How much more does God condescend to his creatures? Oh, so low. He condescends to us so low, so much so his son becomes the incarnate word to communicate to us, to tell us, behold God, here's the gospel. We have to be told. We cannot reason up. God must step down. Again, this is another encouragement for the local church to evangelize the nations. Their ultimate problem is not water, though that's important. Their ultimate problem is not technology. It's not psychological healing. Those things have some weight. I'm not denying that. But the nation's greatest need, and the nation's greatest need, so our nation and other nations, is they need special revelation. They need the gospel. They need to know Christ. They need to see the holiness of God in the Bible. Man's greatest need is for God to reveal himself, and that comes through preaching preaching the power of god and the cross comes by hearing the beauty of preaching is that god is designed to i think preaching is amazing obviously hence why i'm getting in debt for it <laughs> but the beauty of preaching think about this god designed your ears to work in such a way that when you hear the gospel you see christ not weird you hear and then you see it's beautiful it's a, it confounds the wise. Verse 21, this is what he means. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is, again, God's doing. The wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So namely, worldly wisdom, God designed man to be unable to, claim, to climb Jacob's ladder. You, you, just can't, you can't get to him. You can't reason your way to Christ. You can't just scientifically, ah, I can figure him out. We can't. God condescends to his creatures. And one of my favorite phrases is, it pleased God. God got happy. Gave him pleasure through the folly of preaching. Isn't that interesting? God took pleasure and delight and joy to render the world foolish in their thinking and then ordains the church body to preach the gospel to every creature. That's how the world has changed. The folly of the cross is how the world has changed. Isn't that interesting? The preacher of the word of God is by means by which God saves those who believe. The folly of preaching brings God pleasure. God delights in a pastor preaching the word faithfully like Spurgeon did. He delights in, his, in the members of a church preaching the gospel to their friends and their neighbors faithfully. God delights in the church preaching the gospel to the city, the missionary to the unreached. God delights in preaching. 
He loves it. It's his means. Preaching removes the pride of man, exalts the goodness of God, the godness of God, by placing all the burden on Christ. So think about, think about how, if you're an unbeliever you walked in, think about how stupid I look right now. I think that preaching changes people eternally. Why does it look dumb? Let me tell you why. Preaching is mocked because of what it merely appears to be. It's slow growth, slow change. There's a quick way to change people, Kale. Bribe them. Give them a cupcake. Throw money at them. Preaching is repetitive. Same old thing. Same Christ. Same gospel. Same Bible. It's mundane. It's not flashy. It's not woo and bells and whistles and lights. It's not those things. It's old-fashioned, quote-unquote. But we believe in the folly of preaching not only because God commands it, because God has ordained it by means which he saves sinners. But also, I would argue, God is a preacher. God's a speaking God. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks through his Son by the word, and the Spirit gives life. Ezekiel 37, the prophet is commanded to speak to dry bones. What happens? By the preaching, the Spirit enables life. They're alive. John chapter 11, Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, speaks to a dead man. What happens? He's alive. Preaching is God's mean. God is a preaching God. He's a speaking God. The Father preaches to the world that he exists in creation and conscience. The Son is the Word incarnate who preached upon earth. And the Spirit preaches in the heart of a sinner to raise them to life. God loves preaching because God's a preaching God. Brothers and sisters, the folly, of what we, the folly of the gospel is our greatest treasure, is it not? Isn't that good news? So, how then should we live? As a church, how should you react? What should you think? How should you learn? What should you think about the folly of the gospel? I have two charges to you. They're very brief. These are two alternatives that I want you to reject. So I'm going to describe two things for you that you're going to say, I've heard of that. My plea is that you reject them. I'm going to paint them as best as I can. I'm not going to name names or churches. I want you to reject them. I'll, get, I'll understand why. Presumably out of love for the lost and desire, I think, to probably change the culture, impact lives, etc. The church in America has resorted to two ways that compromise the gospel. I want to explain to you. Number one, Maybe you've heard of the attractional method. That's not familiar. Like a, an, well, they're an attractional church. You heard that before? That phraseology? They're attractional. Attractional churches. They attract people. In this, a church is thought to be the producer of a product. What's their product? Anybody want to take a guess? The gospel. It's a product. We sell it. We sell the gospel. It's our product. We're a business. We create product. It's the gospel. We want consumers to consume it. So what do we do? Well, what, what's a good business do? Let's get them in the doors. They'll buy it. Let's get them in. How can we best sell our product? Well, I'll tell you how they do it. Churches resort to, to enlarge their sales. There are many ways. These are, you could look these up to document. I won't name any names, but they're documented. Churches have often raffled off cars. If you come like four Sundays in a row, you've been in a, you've been in a raffle for a car, you might, you, you, might, you might win a car on Sunday morning. Or a vacation raffle, or a cruise raffled off. Sermons are, sermons are often themed around like movie clips, like, Die hard for the gospel. Mission impossible, the gospel. 
Star Wars gospel stories, that kind of stuff. Zesty titles, cool things. The pastor's more of a comedian. He's funnier. He's, he's hip-looking. He has palatable language. Because if we do that, what will happen? Well, we'll come back, right? If you like what we're selling, well, we'll buy more. Let's make it look cooler. So here, here's what happens. We start measuring then merely and solely upon these three things. The three Bs, I haven't heard been told. Budgets, buildings, and butts and seats. We can get those three things. We are killing it. That's all that matters. Growth always equals health. Numbers always being success. Bigger is always better. So if we can increase those things while still being a church, we're succeeding. But wait, what about that conversion? Got it covered. When we come in, we'll bait and switch, pray a prayer, you're all good to go. That's what happens. That's the attraction. I know it sounds like I just made fun of it, but I promise it's a real thing. Been there. The second method, maybe you alter the gospel, often called the prosperity gospel. I can name names if you'd like, but I'm not going to. I might name one, depending on how I feel. This other method goes after, so not necessarily the church, but goes after the gospel itself. We've removed the the fence of the cross. So what Spurgeon faced, doctrines like hell and universalism are either in or replaced. Easy believism replaces repentance and faith. You don't got to fight sin, just believe and you're fine. The God of the Bible is just love, love, love. He is crazy about you. Your picture's on his fridge. He's obsessed with you. More than that, Jesus will actually give you better health. Did you know that? He'll give you a better car. If you just obey, you will get a better raise. No cancer will get you. Be fine. If not, you need to believe more. You need better faith. You need to give more. Jesus give me a better car, a better golf swing, better pay raise, all because I trust him? Sign me up, coach. Sermons are typically about, sermons about God's righteousness or holiness or sin or the cross are replaced with things like Three ways to better your marriage or budgeting better. That's the typical focus of Sunday morning. It's about me. Language is changed in these sermons. Don't use the word sin. That's a hard word. Let's use like brokenness. Messy. You've got a messy life. Less about hell, more. Well, separation from God. It's not really hell. You just, you don't, you're, not, you're not real close anymore. The pulpit's replaced with a cool, mellow table. All offenses are removed. Old-fashioned fears are taken away with a comfy atmosphere. Let's make people feel comfy. They'll love it. They'll come back. They'll buy more. We can sell more. Bing, bang, boom. we got a big church. I'm not saying big churches are bad. Don't think I'm knocking that. This is often a church's attempt to be cool and relevant. Catchy sermon tiles, jokey pastors, soft messages do not make anyone feel guilty or sinful. Because of that, the cross is never displayed. That's horrible. I'm going to quote you Spurgeon again because he's the man. Charles Spurgeon. A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. These methods will not work. Do you want to know why? What does verse 18 say? It's folly. You can't make the gospel cool. It's not supposed to be cool. It should sting. When you go to the doctor and he cuts you open to, to save your life, I'm really glad he cut me open because now I'm saved. A church should measure itself by faithfulness to the Bible. 
So a question you should ask before we end here. Is our preaching biblical? Are our songs rich biblically? Do they follow the Bible's outline for a healthy church? Do we hate sin? Do we love righteousness? Do we evangelize? Do we pray together? Doing these things, the sheep will be fed, their faith bolstered and strengthened. God seems to be in the habit of blessing those churches, either numerically or spiritually enriched. That's more. Ultimately, the reason for these things is not for man to see, but for, glory, for God to see and say, well done. It's good. God's opinion matters more. Jesus told Peter after his re- resurrection, feed my sheep. Because he knows that the power of God is the word of the cross. May you remember that the gospel is to be undefiled, and you're preaching the glory of God lifted high, the wisdom of God magnified, the beauty of Christ displayed, the power of God demonstrated in the gospel. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray.